0: So Gordon Sondland flew all the way from Brussels, and boy are his arms tired, wow. Wow. to fly all the way from Brussels to be deposed by impeachment committees, and then to find out that no, you can't To fly actually.
2: all the way from Brussels to not be deposed by impeachment committees, but I bet he's having great consultations in the Bureau of European and Eurasian yes. Affairs. I'm sure he's just day. having a fun free day in D.C.
3: Sure. When Unexpected you vacation. Your meetings are canceled. Just taken the city. You know, I think
1: you'd think that the president, in his great and unmatched wisdom, could have notified of him this before he got on the plane.
0: But on the upside, like, Sandlin can now, like, you know, get a Segway or a bird scooter and, like, check out the monuments. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the unmatched wisdom edition Setting the bar very high for this edition.
1: <laughs> well, we're all going to speak in sonorous tones
3: yes. with, unmatched An with unmatched wisdom. Yes, and unmatched wisdom. Wait, like um, the great and powerful this, Oz. Does
2: that mean that this episode will be the smartest episode we ever that that record? Ever... <laughs> That's promising a lot. <laughs> Especially because I'm tired, per- I am today. The bar might be
0: a little low for that, actually. <laughs> I am here in the Jungle studio with my good friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis and Tamara Kaufman Wittis. Hi, everybody. Hi, hey. hey. Hi. How are you today? It feels like fall in Washington now.
1: We're great because Susan and I just this morning sent in the afterword for the book right. and it's all done so you can all pre-order it and then it'll be I imagine this is like pre-ordered. having
0: a baby and then you find out that you had a second baby you didn't know you were pregnant with. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. You're
0: like, oh, it's twins.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the afterword. Hopefully nothing more will like happen. like a baby with a second, like a fifth leg or something. An extra <laughs> oh, <limb. laughs> ben, did you Or have the superpower to you didn't know
0: that it had. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put a positive spin on it, shall we? On the podcast this week, Congress releases a series of revealing text messages that show the trump administration pressuring ukraine trump blocks a key participant in that effort from giving a deposition to congress the aforementioned mr sandman
3: it's sundland (laughs) not sondland sondheim Sondheim. (laughs) (laughs) steven sondheim a
2: terrible musical (laughs) in about 10 years whole administration it's going to make a terrible musical. <laughs> uh,
0: and Trump's announcement that he will withdraw U.S. troops from Syria inspires a rare Republican rebellion. Um, so let's start with these text messages. These were released last week after they were turned over by Kurt Volker, who is kind of a key player – and uh, this he is the special envoy. The,
2: former, the former special, special envoy. envoy. That's
0: right, and very important here, because since he is the former special envoy from the U.S. to Ukraine, uh, he went ahead and turned those text messages over to the committees uh, running the impeachment inquiry. These were text messages with the aforementioned Gordon Sondland, as well as Bill Taylor, who is the senior U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, not the ambassador, but kind of
2: The chargé, chargé, which is what you call the head of an embassy when they're not officially – accredited as an ambassador.
0: Right, because the previous ambassador was recalled, which we may also get to in this saga. But Ben, obviously, what, what these text messages show, and to be clear, the Democrats in the communities have not released all of them, and that has been some frustration for the Republicans as well. But they seem to paint a pretty clear picture of Sondland and Volcker in particular, knowing about and uh, this desire by the president to have the Ukrainians investigate his political rivals. What seems to be, by a lot of people's reads, a clear indication that they realize that that was predicated uh, or that the aid release of aid to Ukraine uh, in support for Ukraine, including a meeting with President Zelensky, was predicated upon the Ukrainians starting those investigations. Uh, and even at one point, uh, Ambassador Taylor saying, I think it's crazy if we are predicating it in this way. I'm paraphrasing. So does this show
1: the quid pro quo? Yes, Whether it shows a quid pro quo for purposes of U.S. criminal law, I think is a deeply unimportant question since there is no chance that this is going to be prosecuted. We're not talking about a criminal investigation. So the relevant quid pro quo standard is First of all, I suppose at some you know constitutional level, is it bribery within the meaning of treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors? But also, and more, much more fundamentally than that, is it the kind of thing that you could reasonably say the president was conditioning U.S. aid to Ukraine and a White House meeting on? whether the Ukrainians would deliver the deliverables, which was the word that they used to describe opening an investigation on the Bidens. The answer to that question is, yup, it's really clear from the text messages that these are conditioned. Uh, But actually, it's also really clear from the other surrounding circumstances and from the president's own uh, comments in the phone call, which what, does not have an explicit reference to the quo, but it's it's kind of pregnant with it. So I don't think there's anything surprising about these texts given the surrounding circumstances in which they take place. And I think all of the data kind of points to the same direction, which is that there is a quid pro quo and they're trying to deny it to themselves and to each other. Tammy, is this the normal conduct of diplomacy that we're seeing
0: play out in these texts?
2: (laughs) Um, In some ways, uh, obviously not. But there are certain features of it that are quite common and that are clear indicators of what's actually going on here. I would say there are three things that stick out at me. The first is that Sunland is involved in this at all. Okay, He is a mega-donor who, as a result of his donations to the Trump inaugural committee, got a slot as the US ambassador to the European Union. Ukraine is not in the European Union. Um, Sunlin has no formal role, no formal brief to deal with Ukraine. He's here. Why is he the person texting with Kurt Volker, who's a political appointee but a former career Foreign Service officer not, you not know, somebody from Trump land? And Bill Taylor, a retired U.S. diplomat who's been called back into service to take this temporary role. Why is Sunlin the one who's on the text with these guys? Because he's the White House's enforcer. He's the one who is politically loyal to President Trump and is there to be their authoritative voice, to tell them what the instructions are and to make sure that stuff gets done the way the White House wants it to get done. And so they they are clearly in these texts answering to him. They're asking him questions and he's coming back and saying, here's, here's the way it's going. The second thing that leaps out at me is when it is that Sunland tells Kurt Volker and Bill Taylor, let's quit texting about this and go to the phone. It happens twice. And the thing about working in government is you know that things that are in email are official records and they are going to get kept. Um, and also they might get shared. And so when you want to talk about things that are uncertain or when you really aren't sure you understand what somebody just wrote to you and you want to ask, does this mean what I think it means? You pick up the phone and call. And so it, it's meaningful when Bill Taylor texts Are we now saying that security assistance and White House meeting are conditioned on investigation? And Sundlin immediately replies, call me. In other words, I can't believe you fucking wrote that down. Get on the phone with me right now. I'm not going to confirm it in writing. And then it happens again later, well, where Bill Taylor says, as I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. And Sunlin then, like, basically for the record, says, Bill, I think you're incorrect about the president's intentions. There is no quid pro quos of any kind. But I suggest we stop the back and forth by text. And if you still have concerns, call a secretary. Basically, call Secretary Pompeo. Subtext being, I'm confident he'll back me up and you better do what you're told. So we have the career diplomat saying, I want to be sure that you are giving me clear instructions for the record that this linkage exists. And Sunlin saying, "Eh, let's get on the phone because I don't want to put that on the record. And then the third thing that leaps out is that Volker and Sunlin are literally drafting talking points for the Ukrainian government that will meet the conditions the White House has set. And those conditions are really clear They have to agree to investigate Burisma, the company that Hunter Biden was on the board of, and they have to investigate, quote, 2016, unquote, which relates to the question of whether there was a server in the Ukraine that was part of this whole DNC hack. So- uh I think this is not just about revealing the quid pro quo. This is revealing the whole business.
3: Yeah, and I think to your to the second point you made, it's not an accident, right? Bill Bill Taylor is, I think, pretty clearly doing this intentionally, right? You can imagine how angry Sunlin must have felt to have gotten him on the phone and then have Taylor respond in writing. As I mentioned on the call, I think this is crazy. That's not someone who's just getting clarification. That's someone who's saying, I am putting my objections in writing. I am putting what you are doing in writing. And one thing that's interesting is that Bill Taylor sends the, as I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign Then five hours lapse during which period apparently someone consults with the White House, with other people. And then he comes back with this, just to be clear, there's no quid pro quo. I mean, it's like responding to a drug dealer by being like, (laughs) just to be clear, I definitely did not mean any illegal substances. I totally meant, you know, write something innocent, putting that in writing. Right. I mean, it's. It's such a, um obvious pantomime that it is almost – there's something almost comical about reading it. you know, And, and so the idea that, that this isn't the kind of overt quid pro quo that frankly could be provable sort of in, in a court of law, this is about as good evidence as you could possibly imagine. The other thing that's relevant here is apparently – these are only part of the text because the State Department is withholding at least some messages right. uh, that Sondland had that Volcker himself has not turned over. And so uh, this is about as explicit uh, evidence of quid pro quo, I think, as you'd ever hope to find in any kind of investigation.
0: And what's also fascinating to me about it, too, and, and Tam, you made the point that Sondland is not a career diplomat. he's a He's a— Hotelier, essentially. I mean, he develops luxury hotels in Seattle and in Portland, <clears throat> which maybe gives him some he's commonality. He's a very
2: successful businessman.
0: Hey, not How taking anything away. can you question away. his judgment? For all I know, I've stayed in one of his hotels. There you go. In my hometown. But there's a sort of like a sense of kind of, you know, acting with impunity here. I mean, I, I you, we read these points where he's telling him to get on the phone, but like- it's almost like Sutherland's like getting like, don't say get on the phone in the text. Like all of this is going to be discovered. Just be cool, man. Just, Just be, be cool, cool man. about this. Don't we talk about it? And he's sort of getting lapped here by Taylor, who you can see is looking at this, being like, "You guys are out of your mind. I'm not going to be a party to this." But it, there is kind of this enforcer sort of quality. It seems like that comes across, in it. and you're kind of looking at it, being like, "You know, wow did you did you really think that given the way that Bill Taylor was reacting?" that, you know, you were going to get away with this. This also was only happening a little while ago. This is; These are quite recent uh, exchanges at a time when I don't think the public quite knew that Ukraine aid was being withheld, but there was this kind of growing sense within the administration that something funny was going on with the Ukraine aid.
2: Yeah, I think all of that is right. And I also have to say, like, what Bill Taylor did by putting this stuff on the record is— what career officials do when they want to put a flashing red light in front of people saying this is not according to the rules and if you want me to break the rules you have to explicitly tell me that i need to break them that so he was very definitely doing that but also you know and i'll admit i've been on the receiving end once or twice from somebody else you know that i was working with who wanted to call down the authority of on high when i was questioning and basically end the conversation and say I'm doing what our principal wants us to do, so you shut up and follow along. That's what Sunlin's doing in the very final text that is part of this package, where he says, if you still have concerns, I recommend you give Lisa Kenna, who's Pompeo's executive secretary, or the secretary a call to discuss them directly. In other words, don't you argue with me. I'm speaking on behalf of the of the department and on behalf of the secretary. And that immediately takes you to Okay, well, what was Secretary Pompeo's role here if Sunlin is so confident he's acting in his name?
1: So I also think the the other notable thing about these texts that your comment, Shane brings to mind is that they are presumably representative of a class, right? Because the whistleblower describes having multiple conversations with multiple people who are concerned about different aspects of this and how many of those people were in this environment after You know, Comey writes his memos and Andy McCabe writes his memos. And people are now experiencing things that they think are highly irregular and highly inappropriate. And how many of them like Bill Taylor in these, in this case, in text messages, but I suspect in some cases in emails and I suspect in some other cases in kind of memos to file. How many people just kind of sit down and say, hey, this is what happened and, you know, here are my concerns about it. And I do think as you have, just as the administration today felt compelled to shut down this testimony – I suspect they're going to have a lot of material, both not just oral, but also written that they're going to have to either have exposed like this or have to fight to prevent the exposure of.
3: I mean, and and going to the whistleblower, I have to say, reading these text messages, it is pretty astonishing that there was just one initial whistleblower because, you know, look, Bill Taylor doesn't come off as a bad guy, right? He clearly is uh, trying not to go along with this. But It is incredibly explicit what's going on. There are a lot of people who understand that the president is conditioning military aid for Ukraine on this abusive investigation, Rudy Giuliani is on television in the same time period. I mean, something seriously rotten is going on. And so, you know, Tammy, you said you've, you've received these phone calls of, hey, people are trying to do with the principal once, and you can take it up with the boss. But I have to say, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of the, the career civil service and, and the bureaucracy as sort of this potential check on Trump. And I have to say, I do think that this story is a little bit of an illustration of like, how empty that is. And I don't know if it's a boiled frog thing or it's, or it's because it might look on the surface more like traditional diplomacy. But I, I was pretty surprised like that Bill, Bill Taylor, who even in his text messages kind of jokes about, and I quit if this happens. But basically, he says, I quit if the president goes back on his word regarding this quid pro quo. So am I wrong to criticize him for not, I don't know, drawing the line sooner?
2: I think it's a tough question to answer. I mean, on the one hand, like this is a former military officer, had a long and successful career in the State Department, then left government, was working at the U.S. Institute of Peace in a very senior role and came back into government. This is actually, I think, the third time he was called back into government to do this temporary job. You know, so clearly doing it out of a sense of duty, like the ambassador got yanked, fair or unfair. This is an important time. I used to be the ambassador in Ukraine, so I can step in and do it for a few months. Right. One last heist, (laughs) then you retire (laughs) happily. And, you know, and I'm guessing that when he took the role on, he had no idea that this kind of stuff was going to be that he was going to be confronted with this. And you see him very carefully and explicitly putting stuff on the record. But he's out in Kiev all by himself. He's not an accredited ambassador. He hasn't been confirmed by the Senate. And so he doesn't have an easy way to, you know, let people know that this is going on. And as you pointed out, this is, Shane, this is very, very recent. Um, This is just a few weeks ago. So who's to say next time he was back for consultations that he might not have found a way. But thanks to the whistleblower that we do have, uh, all of this has come out and he's left a, a trail of crumbs that's pretty clear.
0: All right. So let's continue with this as we transition to the second segment. So Gordon Sondland was supposed to be deposed today by uh, these three committees that are running the impeachment. As we said, he flew in from Brussels just for the occasion. Uh, The Democrats released a statement saying that apparently at 1230 a.m. on Tuesday morning, the State Department's legal advisor left a voicemail with (laughs) Sondland's attorneys (laughs) saying that the administration would prevent him from testifying. Democrats immediately decried this as an act of obstruction. Uh, And as we record on – oh, what is it about? Two o'clock on Tuesday afternoon have said that they will subpoena Sondland for both his statement as well as documents, meaning emails and texts that he has. So, Susan, like an initial question here. Is the administration stopping a State Department employee from speaking to Congress an act of obstruction?
3: Yes. Yeah, so speaking of putting things in writing and on the record, Ambassador Sondland released his own statement this morning in which he said that he is, quote, profoundly disappointed that he will not be able to testify today. He traveled to Washington from Brussels in order to prepare for his testimony and is available to answer the committee's questions. He believes he acted in the best interest of the United States and he stands ready to answer fully and truthfully. That is him saying, do not put this on me. Mike Pompeo, this line that you're trying to put out there about how you you're really, uh, you know, you're trying to protect State Department employees and and you're putting, you're, you're preventing various forms of testimony in order, be, you know, because you don't want them to be harassed or something. That is not what's going on here. I want to testify. The administration is proactively reaching in and preventing me from doing so. And so I think it's sort of significant that he felt compelled to do that and basically say, I'm not going to be your fall yeah. guy and I'm not going to sort of play, al- I'm not going to play along with this any longer.
0: I see that busking. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> um, you know, and, and to the the, the prisoner's dilemma game exactly. here, like Kurt Volker's already defected. You know, <laughs> to you know sort of this broader question of what Congress does with this now. Well, so first and foremost, Sunlin could quit, right? So Kurt Bolker was pushed out, resigned. Sort of the circumstances are still a little bit murky, at least to my mind. Um, you know, but as a former government employee, he said, sure, I'd be happy to answer your questions. How's next Tuesday? Sunlin is still technically a government official. But the only stick that the government has here, or Pompeo, or the White House, is they'll fire him if he shows up to testify. And so, you know, if this becomes ugly enough, if he really thinks that he's meeting the underside of a bus, if he's forced to resign because he can no longer carry out the duties of his office sort of effectively. One thing that might change things is if he says, I'm quitting and I'm going to go and talk to Congress.
0: Ben, what's, what on what grounds is the administration even blocking him? Like they haven't asserted executive privilege. They've said that the Democrats are proceeding – out of the normal order of the process, I gather because they never actually took a vote on whether to open an impeachment inquiry, and then the state, which they don't have to do according to the rules. But then the State Department has also said you're making onerous requests, and they're bullying, like they're throwing a lot out there. But,
2: but they also say that they intend to comply with information requests. From well, well, for
0: the subpoena to Pompeo, yeah. surely. But like, but like, what on what grounds is the administration saying to Ambassador Sondland you may not testify before the committee?
1: well it's one form or another of executive privilege right I mean you can you can call it anything you want, and they have sometimes used with respect to White House officials they have sometimes used this idea of that the privilege is so strong with respect to certain White House aides that they don't need to show up at all a sort of absolute immunity against uh, against uh congressional subpoena. They've also sometimes just taken the position I, – I think the best way to describe it is the go-fuck-yourself position. We're not showing up. And then when they do show up, they uh, sometimes take the view that, as Hope Hicks did, that they will not answer – Any questions about anything after the president uh, swore the oath of office and sometimes in Corey Lewandowski's case, who's not a government employee at all, that he will protect the president's confidences. And so their basic position, as best as I can distill it, seems to be that at any given moment they will get away with exactly as much as they can and attempt to force the committees to – go into litigation over it, which then defers the thing for months. And I think that's the basic position. They are going to lose most of these litigations, or at least many of them. In some cases, they have some better arguments than others, but they're going to lose a lot of these litigations. The question is, do they lose them four, six, 18 months from now, or is there some way to speed it up? And so I think this is just a way of deferring and, as Susan points out quite rightly, putting him in the position in which he either kind of steps down and defies them or it buys them some time.
3: I do think there's another calculation at play here as well, and that's that the administration has clearly determined that they are more likely to preserve Republican congressional support for its stonewalling tactic than they are to preserve substantive congressional Republican support for whatever Sondland is actually going to be willing to say under oath. Now, the funny thing is that actually puts his Trump's congressional defenders in an even worse position because they now have to not just defend what actually happened and say there's no quid pro quo or there was nothing to this, right? We saw them all sort of come out of that Volcker meeting and say, I don't think that advanced impeachment inquiry at all. And then they, you know, to which the Democrat said, oh, really? (laughs) Allow me to show you some text messages that he handed over. You know, now congressional Republicans are in the position of having to say, no, 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 we don't want the executive branch to give us information. We don't want to be asking questions. And not only is that diametrically opposed to the positions they've taken throughout this administration, certainly in the prior administration with respect to prior secretaries of state in the production of information, namely in things like the Benghazi hearing. But it's forcing them to sort of contort into pretzels that makes it really hard for them to look their constituents in the eyes. And so, you know, I think it's the White House sort of making a a determination about what's best for itself, but is not necessarily thinking about how to sort of soften this for, for its allies.
2: Yeah. And I think in doing that, it really lays bare what it is that this president and the people around him demand of their loyal supporters. It demands not only that they sacrifice their principles or sacrifice their own interests and take on costs. It demands that they contradict them utterly um, for the sake of the narrow interests of the president But it also seems to me that what this adds up to in terms of a White House strategy, you know, you saw the first wave of congressional Republicans after the call notes were released saying, oh, I haven't read the call notes, but I don't, you know, this is just normal diplomacy. And then all the kind of anchors and stuff read them the call (laughs) notes, right? Um, And then they said, well, I don't, I wasn't at the Volcker deposition or I'm not up to date on that. You know, okay. well, here. Twitter? What's Twitter? Never heard of it. (laughs) Right. Here. The text messages. This is what Kurt Volker said. This is what Sondland said, and so they've kind of been going back to, well, if this is what it is, this one incident of a phone call and this little quid pro quo about the aid, and after all, the aid got released, so no harm, no foul. That might be bad. I can't necessarily defend it, but. It doesn't rise to an impeachable defense. That seems to be like the ground that they're trying to hold right now. And the only way they can hold that ground is if no new information comes out. Because if new information comes out, like the president asking China to also investigate Joe Biden, for example, then it gets harder and harder for them to say it doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. And
0: and that's such an important point, too. You're absolutely right. The Republicans are trying to sort of cabin this off as what he did was very bad but it itself is not impeachable but actually george conway brings this up in his you know excellent long piece in the atlantic that impeachment need not be considered in a sort of a way of, of a criminal matter where it is just this offense. It may be considered both from the context of a president's behavior and as a kind of guard against recidivism, which is to say he did something bad here and he might do something again. Right. And I think that, you know, for the Republicans, it's – well, it does seem that like their defense is very much to keep it focused in a very legalistic kind of way on this one offense – Whereas what Democrats are trying to do is, yes, keep it focused on one offense, but the entire backdrop is Donald Trump and how he behaves as president. And that is – you know, the pitch to the public, which has been watching this movie for more than three years.
3: Yeah. And the, and the Democrats have been smart to put the White House between a rock and a hard place of saying that, yes, refusing to produce testimony might weaken evidence for an article of impeachment regarding bribery and quid pro quo on Ukraine, but it strengthens the article of impeachment for obstruction of Congress. Right. And so they really, I think, have been able to, at least in terms of public communication, force that framing relatively effectively.
2: I I do think there's a danger here for Democrats, though, because one reason that we've seen the polls shift, one reason that we've seen, you know, a couple of Republicans stick their head above the parapet is because the narrative in the call notes and in these texts is so clear. It's so clear. It's so undeniable. It's there in black and white. And that's why the Democrats initially were like, we're going to focus impeachment tightly on Ukraine because the narrative was so strong and obvious. It was undeniable. And once you have to start reaching to, well, he might do it again. Look, he just said it about China. Is he doing it there? Then it starts to get confusing and speculative and diffuse. And I think you may, you start to lose the messaging argument if you're a Democrat. So that would be my worry for them.
1: Yeah, I think people are misreading the poll data on this pretty substantially. You know, the poll increase of support for impeachment and removal, so far, and there are only a limited number of polls here, but reflects consolidation of democratic support for impeachment much more than it reflects people anybody changing their minds. The, president, the Republicans
0: have changed appreciably in a
1: in a small way, right. but right. but about twenty percent of Republicans, which have is changed.
0: a huge amount considering they haven't moved on anything. Well,
1: that's that's in the in the outlying polls, the. The president's approval rating in the 538 average is basically unchanged it's right within the zone that it's been in and i think the democrats that are getting excited about the you know the the tide of public opinion changing are perhaps getting a little bit out ahead of their skis right now and i don't i don't say that that's not where it's headed but I don't see the data to support that yet. And what I what I see is that now nearly all Democrats support impeachment, and so the president's the support for impeachment is starting to approximate the disapproval rate of the president. Uh, and a, a fair number of independents are starting to you know go that direction too. But the president's base of support still looks like it's holding to me.
3: Right, but you know, Shane, I, I think. We would be remiss to not also mention, you know, that you and your colleagues in The Washington Post have added to this story as well, you know, and I'm I losing track of time, but, you know, the story you guys wrote about all of the other calls with foreign right. leaders that people are incredibly worried and disturbed about. And so I take Ben's point, but at the same time, the dam does appear to be breaking and sort of people feeling as though the president's vulnerable and they want to add their little stick to this fire of saying, oh, by the way, we're, we're worried about this too. Yeah,
0: um let's worry about something else.
2: <laughs> the world blowing up.
0: <laughs> Follow me to Syria, children. Um so the president tweeted on uh, I guess it was Sunday night or was it Monday morning? It was Sunday night, after a phone call that he had with President Erdogan of Turkey, uh that we he is pulling out troops from this area in Syria near Turkey that have essentially served as a kind of tripwire to keep Turkish forces from coming in and uh basically slaughtering our Kurdish allies in the Syrian Defense Force that are the reason that we were able to effectively dismantle ISIS. So, Tammy, the president has made this kind of threat before. Uh, We've talked about it on the podcast before. It's the reason that Jim Mattis resigned. Um, So talk about is this new? Is there something different about this threat? And why do you think it has inspired this, as far as I can tell, nearly unanimous, say, for Ron Paul Uh, Opposition Rand Paul, Paul, sorry, Uh, Ron Paul doesn't like it either. either. Uh, Opposition from Republicans in the Congress.
2: Sure. So yes, Jim Mattis resigned. His resignation last December was catalyzed by uh, the last Trump Erdogan phone call, in which the president of Turkey seemed to have persuaded the American president against his interests to withdraw american They're forces. They got to keep him and Erdogan off the phone late at night. Yeah, you know, and this was very persuasive. It's, he one. seems to be very persuasive. And of course, last December, Mattis resigned and Brett McGurk, who was the sort of coordinator of the counter-ISIS coalition, uh resigned. They both resigned to a certain extent to protest this, although I think McGurk's was more closely tied to this. Mattis was more broadly related to his disagreements with the president. Um, But ultimately, that U.S. withdrawal was never fully implemented. I don't know if it's wiser heads, but heads in the administration prevailed on the president making clear that it was very few troops. It didn't cost very much money. They weren't really doing much fighting. Um, this was basically to help keep the ISIS guys that we that had been captured in camps. so they didn't rejoin the fight. And so Trump allowed them to persuade him to kind of leave things status quo for a long period of time. But, you know, if you were a member of the Syrian Defense Forces, one of the Kurds or Arabs who'd been fighting ISIS alongside the U.S. and the U.K. and others in northeast Syria, you could not be surprised that the president finally on Sunday night decided to go ahead and do what he wanted to do nine months ago you must have been expecting it at some point. And so on the one hand, you know, the loud cries of disappointment and, you know, betrayal and abandonment that you're hearing from people like Brett McGurk or General Votel, who's now retired, but was the head of Central Command. You know, it's on the one hand, it's like, come on, guys, this is the most telegraphed punch in recent modern Middle Eastern history. On the other hand, You know, it really is crossing a Rubicon to a certain extent in the sense that these are people who shed blood alongside us. In fact, they shed a heck of a lot more blood than we did. They are the ones who have been keeping our enemies, the ISIS fighters, in jail, essentially in prison camps in northeast Syria and keeping them under lock and key to prevent them from regrouping or melting away. And they are the ones who have been to the extent that anyone has been... Helping civilians in Northeast Syria maintain a degree of independence from the brutal government of Bashar al-Assad who has killed half a million of his own citizens. You know, it's the SDF that's been doing all of this. And so it is a betrayal. and it is an abandonment. Um but it is also not incongruent with the very narrow aims, and one can say the irresponsible aims or the short-sighted aims or even the immoral aims, but the very narrow aims that the United States has long had in Syria. To me, you know, from a policy perspective, the great danger here is um, with respect to ISIS because the STF forces have made it very clear that if Turkey comes in, if the United States gets out of the way and lets Turkish forces enter into this area, they will stop defending these ISIS prison camps so that they can defend themselves against the Turks. And that makes an ISIS resurgence very, very likely.
3: So Timmy, one sort of strain of criticism I've seen over the past few days has been, um, you know, not really sort of Trump defenders, but um, people who were critics of the Obama administration's policy in Syria saying, are you people kidding me that you former Obama officials are now, you know, crying these big crocodile tears at us having abandoned sort of allies and and walked back promises in Syria? Is that a reasonable line of critique that the trends you're talking about, sort of the United States' narrow interest in Syria, actually predate Donald Trump? Or is that – is it unfair? Is this sort of genuinely something different?
2: Uh, honestly, Obama's aims in Syria were narrower even than uh, Donald Trump's. And, you know, the, the short-lived Trump policy on Syria that was announced just a little over a year ago actually had broader aims than just defeating ISIS, aims that included trying to get Iranian influence out of Syria, which was a pipe dream, and trying to create leverage for a more equitable political settlement in Syria, which was also a pipe dream. But they did have some broader aims, which they quickly abandoned last December when President Trump first announced his intention to withdraw American forces. So yes, it's correct to say that American policy on Syria has been narrowly focused on ISIS through both the Obama and Trump administrations. So it's not wrong to, you know, if you're talking about people who've been robust defenders of Obama's Syria policy, but I would say that there are a lot of people who served in the Obama administration, left the Obama administration, and have Made very clear their own differences with President Obama's views on Syria and his decisions on Syria. And they've, you know, and I would put myself in that category as well. And so, you know, people who have always seen American interests in Syria as broader than simply countering ISIS and America's moral responsibility in Syria as broader than simply countering ISIS because we're there have been critics of this policy the whole way along. And so I think that there's just a a politically motivated failure to draw distinctions and failure to look past the surface in a lot of that kind of, you know, calling out hypocrisy that we see right now. But
1: I take a lot of the calling out of hypocrisy to be as much about the uh, withdrawal from Iraq in 2011 as it is about Syria per se, right? I mean, I, I think
2: people's... Not not pe- this week. Not this really? week. This I, I mean, week I, it's really been about this withdrawal decision.
1: I always took it as Obama announced a precipitous withdrawal from Iraq. Who are Obama administration officials to complain about a precipitous sudden withdrawal from Syria?
2: Yeah, I I, I don't think that's right. I, I think even if that is the criticism, um, there is a substantive answer to that, which is that... Yes, people were warning Obama about the consequences of a precipitous withdrawal from Iraq. He should have listened. He didn't. But there was no ISIS at
1: that point. No, that's when he created ISIS. Well, Don't you right. Hillary
2: Clinton? It, Don't forget it was a joint
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He and Hillary Clinton <laughs> and, sat down with Baghdadi, signed and the, the charter and said, we'll get out of the way now so that you can go create ISIS.
2: Right. So God that's, speed. that's my whole point, right? So you can say, well, he should have foreseen it, but he didn't. But in the case of ISIS, it's been there the whole time, right? Like when Obama decided to put forces into Syria in a very limited way, ISIS was there. When Trump increased forces in Syria, ISIS was there. ISIS is still there. So it's a, it's a very different argument.
3: So do we think that now Jim Mattis, who has said that he will criticize this administration when the time is right and he will know it when he sees it,
2: do we expect to hear anything
3: <laughs> from... The dearly departed. You know,
2: one very enterprising reporter did reach out to Mattis yesterday. I forget who it was off off the top of my head. And Mattis said, I stand by my resignation letter. So I guess the time is not right. But it does seem to be right for Nikki Haley, Mike Huckabee, like a whole bunch of Republicans who have been silent as the grave on this whole Ukraine thing who have not actually been piping up in f- for or against the president in recent months. And all of a sudden they are leaping out of the woodwork to show some daylight with the White House over this serious
0: And situation. so did Pat Robertson, by the way. Which, oh, that's now, right. That you know, is what is fa-
2: and by the way, I just want to
1: point out about Pat Robertson's condemnation. The evangelical he's, leader. Yeah. yeah. So he asserted in that that Trump was going to have the mandate of heaven withdrawn. Yes. Which I would just like to point out is a weird importation into domestic evangelical theology of traditional Chinese. Uh, <laughs> you know, the emperor has the mandate, mandate of heaven, heaven until yeah. it's withdrawn. Guarantee
2: uh, he
0: did not have that on his mind. Uh, when I mean, he it said was it. like, like, He'd why? Been watching
2: <clears throat> too many movies, clearly. I was <laughs> like, what is this? The Tang Dynasty? But, you know, no? I want
0: to bring it, we'll just end on this maybe, no maybe you'll just. Giving me quick reactions if you think I'm off pace in this. But to your point, Tammy, we did see people who have never criticized the president come out over this. And yes, while Republicans strongly pushed back the last time that Trump threatened to withdraw troops, there was a sort of a kind of a blood curdling screech in it almost yesterday that I detected. And I just wonder if what you're seeing here is not just deeply felt opposition to what he's doing, but a way to Really stand up and start pushing against the president. And if you're the president, I mean, and maybe now that's maybe that's completely, completely cynical, so that they have an opportunity to say, "Oh no, no, no! I haven't said with him on everything. I've stood up to him on this one policy I feel very deeply about." But I just have to think that if you are Donald Trump and you are the one-man war room, by the way, right now managing this whole situation as you face what seems to be a very likely impeachment and trial in the Senate. If you want to activate the jurors in your party against you, like you've just found the thing to do it. And is this really the smartest thing when – you're really pissing them off about this. Are they possibly thinking in the back of their head when they have to vote on you what, about you on Ukraine? Thinking, you know, you do some other stuff I really don't like. He's coming out pro-choice tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, no, you know, I, I mean, it just seems
0: politically quite risky and counterintuitive. But then again, that is his brand.
2: Well, so what was his calculation here? And I was, try- I was trying to puzzle this out yesterday. Like, why would he decide to do this right now in the middle of this shit show? And I think it's, you know, maybe it was to change the subject. We've seen him do that before. But maybe it was because he feels like he has to put some points on the board in terms of campaign promises. And getting our guys out of Syria, he can say, I've ended this war. We defeated ISIS. The boys are home. Right. So maybe that was why. And I think that it's it's not so much that Republicans, you know, want to be able to say that they don't agree with him on everything. I think that what's happened is that over the last two weeks, Republicans have felt increasing pressure to criticize him over Ukraine. They can't criticize him over Ukraine because then they're helping his enemies. But this is a way that they can criticize. So this is just a proxy for their, their actual need to criticize him publicly. And that's why I think it should worry him because it says something about the pressures they're feeling from below.
1: Right.
0: OK. Let's move on to object lessons. I'll go first. Uh, mine's actually – it's a little bit old at this point. Not too old. It's only like, what, nine days old. That's like
2: – In dog years. <laughs> in my that's, husband just yeah.
0: pre-era. Uh, A a piece that my colleague Glenn Kessler, who runs the inimitable Fact Checker blog and Fact Checker project for The Post, did that I think is really worth reading, particularly some people might not have caught up with this. The title of it is Trump's False Claim that the Rules for Whistleblowers Were Recently Changed. Um, This is both an important piece to read because there's been some misunderstanding and, frankly, disinformation floating out there about the rules for whistleblowing with the intelligence community inspector general and whether you have to have firsthand information. Information only, or you can have secondhand information, i.e. I heard this from someone. Um, and it is true that the form that one fills out to be a whistleblower did change. But Glenn goes on to explain why that has been kind of wildly misinterpreted. Um, this appeared to start with a piece in The Federalist that was filled with a lot of assumptions. And yes, some facts, i.e. the form did change. But I can't detect any effort on the part of the person who wrote that to Pick up a phone and call like a press office at the intelligence community inspector general's office, who then would have explained what actually happened here and that no, Will we you didn't change them the to rules. Do reporting, you know, I, I do. If you're going to call yourself a reporter, I think it's kind of the it's the criteria. Um, but he goes through and explains that while yes, this is confusing, the form did change. The important thing here is that the whistleblower law. Uh, is what controls. Uh, and these a really good um, explication of all of this. But I pointed out both to clear up any confusion that people may be having, because I've seen this like thinking people in good faith asking the question actually, but also to demonstrate how the kind of life cycle that these things take on, right, where a piece of just frankly bad reporting um, gets pushed out from the bloodstream. Uh, the president latched onto it and was well and was tweeting in all caps, why were the rules for whistleblowers changed? And you know, there was an answer to this question, and you could find it in less than an hour by picking up a phone. Um, so anyway, read this, and just a reminder to be on guard for these things that you are seeing out there. Sometimes things do not actually have uh, sinister stories and motivations behind them. Sometimes there's a very simple answer to your important question. Um, you want to go next?
3: My object lesson is a photograph of <gasps> CNN's newest. National security Yay. analyst, Look who it is. and it is Shane Harris. Oh, that's me. Um, and I that's think Ben and I have not been nearly competitive enough about our CNN, MSNBC, um, House divided at Lawfare. But now that Shane is at CNN, I'm planning on ramping that yeah, up. Yeah, well, now you what can. What would that, make that do, like, consist of? I don't know. I haven't one. I haven't planned it out yet.
2: Yeah, you guys can like double team on Ben, but mm-hmm. I, I I'm feeling like maybe I need to get a gig with I don't know like fox, fox. <laughs> yeah, we or e-fashion or something fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you could get a go get msnbc too and then we could be like a house divided
2: no i want to do like the home and garden teamwork. oh yeah
0: <laughs> that would be a fun one I'd be considering going under contact.
2: Terry's teaching, teaching you me. how
3: to make a birdhouse this morning.
0: <laughs> you know, this means that if we if we do a TV hit together, Susan, we'll have done like a podcast, a live presentation, and TV, like all the Planes, trains, and automobiles. Totally. It's
3: happening. Totally. It's totally. all happening. We're gonna cut
0: an album. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Christmas time. SH squared. Yes!
0: <laughs> It'll just be called Shh <laughs>
1: Oh, Ben, what you got? All right. I have the confluence of two uh, rational security themes, this being a scotch drinking podcast with a legal sometimes uh, thread. So the other day— <laughs> I like you left with scotch tasting. <laughs> the, the other day, the previously reputable distillery, a scotch distillery, the Glenlivet, tweeted the following— abomination in the sight of God and man.
2: The Glen Levitt has released an original whiskey drinking experience. A collection of edible cocktail capsules made from seaweed, meaning no need. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Edible
1: cocktail capsules made from seaweed. Lost me (laughs) already. I I I want to say that's 11 seconds of 54 seconds of video they tweeted that is actually the vilest thing uh, they look
2: are we sure uh, it's not like a late April? i thought it was a joke. joke i really well, did if
1: it's a joke i i don't then it's and explain what these things look like. They look like Tide Pods. I, I don't know what else to say. So I tweeted it filled with with, um, with a filled with you know some kind of combination of scotch and other stuff. There's other and stuff by the in way, too? the faces of the people that they're feeding them to look bewildered <laughs> and faintly horrified. And here, thing. put this in your mouth. Yeah, exactly. But it really does look like eating Tide Pod capsules. So I um, tweeted it if with If you a,
2: don't want to taste your scotch, you can just swallow it whole. <laughs> in
1: seaweed. Um, Let it dissolve in your belly. But the coup de grace is that uh, the okay. inimitable at crime a day, otherwise known as Mike Chase, tweeted in response, 26 USC 5301 5606 and 27 CFR 5.46 make it a federal crime to sell liquor in misleading containers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, in response to the uh, many hundreds of responses that he got, he uh, did a pie chart categorizing the responses, which uh, showed that a plurality were Tide Pod jokes, followed by a substantial amount of whiskey snobbery, And a certain number of jokes about putting the pods in your butt. (laughs) Um, And a certain number of pod jokes that were something, something and Donald Trump.
2: This is Um, like a product designed for Frank Zappa. uh, Oh, my God.
1: So we're going to get some, right? (laughs) Tip to Mike Chase, as always, um, and uh, Glenn Livit. No, just, just don't, don't just do, that just do that do with your
3: hot stove. Do uh,
0: yeah, don't Glenn Don't put it up there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's the new slip. <laughs> uh, this is, is not medical, is medical up advice. Your arms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Well, we're all talking about it. <laughs> I'm going to go buy some of these tonight.
2: (laughs) No, you are not.
0: Oh, my God. Well, if you you are still here or have not fallen over into traffic...
2: Oh
1: wait a minute! There's what? a follow-up from the Glen. Oh my
0: God! This is the longest object lesson ever. They,
1: they tweeted yesterday. I just noticed this. It seems our cocktail capsule collection has caused a bit of a stir. Ooh. We wanted to reassure you the Glenlivet is producing safe, responsible, and delicious products. For adults. Our seaweed capsules are a limited London cocktail release and are not available elsewhere.
0: Oh, Why do Londoners get to have all the fun? <laughs>
1: They're walking around funny.
0: <laughs> Rational Security is the production of Lawfare. You can... You can I mind it as ever. <laughs> you can find our show page. So unfortunately for you at lawfareblog.com you can get rational security scotch <laughs> no you cannot oh, you definitely can't get those I'm totally kidding those are not available those are only those are limited Parisian run <laughs> oh my god you can follow us on twitter or unfollow us at RTL security <laughs> you can find us on facebook um, whenever you download the podcast please just don't leave a one star review <laughs> We appreciate even that. Even if we
2: deserve it. <laughs> boy, oh boy!
0: Um, our long-suffering audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel, and our show is produced and edited. <laughs> don't even try it. Week. On
3: behalf of Sophia, don't even try it. <laughs> by
0: J. Podia Howell. Music this week by Kurt Volker, <laughs> by Kurt Volker, uh, Gordon Sondland, and Bill Taylor with their rendition of Mister Sandman.
2: Bring me a Except
0: drink. it's not the Cordette's version. It's all three of them dressed up as the Golden Girls. <laughs> so I guess that Kirk can be Rose, Gordon can be Dorothy, and Bill Taylor can be Blanche. Nice. <laughs> That'll work. It's a good cast. Sophia Yan can be Sophia. On behalf of my good friend Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara kaufman Wittis, and on behalf of Glenn Livett, I'm Shane Harris, and <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.